Hello everybody and welcome to Coffee Talk 1 of Season 2 of Go Forth, a music education talk show. I'm Summer. And I'm Owen. Today we have an interview with Dr. Jared Rawlings talking about bullying in the music education classroom. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to Go Forth, the music education talk show brought to you by the music education department in the Sunderman Conservatory of Music. My name is Logan Shippey, and I am proud to introduce Dr. Jared Rawlings from the University of Utah. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Of course, it's, it's my pleasure. So I wanted to talk to you tonight about the topic of bullying and since bullying is often used as a catch-all and a sort of umbrella term, I was wondering if you could provide us with a usable definition of what bullying is. Sure. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, the setup is appropriate and it's absolutely correct. Bullying is kind of this broader umbrella term that we use to capture a phenomenon that's, that's peer-based, that's peer group-based, right? That uses aggression as the behavior. And so specifically we're looking at antisocial aggressive behavior. So behavior that is meant to kind of break down someone, it's intended to threaten, intimidate, humiliate another human, both in a physical way, like kicking, punching, verbally, teasing, taunting, name calling, and also socially, whether it's eye rolling, social manipulation through rumor spreading. But we understand the definition of bullying right now, at least the Centers for Disease Control has decided the definition for us as researchers is going to be that it's any sort of unwanted aggressive behavior among school-aged youth that has a high likelihood of causing physical or psychological harm or injury. And, and what we're looking for is three kind of steps to this. So is the aggressive behavior because of an imbalance or either real or perceived power that favors the bully or the aggressor, the perpetrator? Is the aggressive behavior repeated or has a high likelihood of being repeated over time? And then, like I mentioned before, the intimidation or the demeaning fact, there's a power control issue. And so using that kind of definition that helps us understand that we are looking for aggressive behavior antisocial aggressive behavior and is it is it because there's a power differential being repeated or has a high likelihood of being repeated over time and is there a kind of this feeling of threat or intimidation from the victim about the perpetrator yeah of course so you mentioned that it's an antisocial aggressive activity and i think we could mm -hmm. all agree that we are social creatures so what right. would cause this aggressive antisocial behavior so there's some theories out there. I'm going to cite a few of them. There's Bandura. I'm sure you've heard of Bandura. Bandura social uh, learning theory. And, and that's a huge kind of theory that bases some of the bullying interaction off of. So causes, potential causes. This human comes into a social circle, comes into a social ecological system, right? Moves into yes. an out of state, comes into a community. They now go into the school. They have no friends. They're trying to make friends. They, they finally find their people. And all of a sudden they start to act maybe, maybe differently than the socially acceptable norms would be for that group of people. There was from earlier this evening, we, we watched a, a snippet from the movie Little. 
And this human kind of walks in assuming she has status, assuming she has power, assuming that she will have friends very easily and is quickly ostracized to the, what was called in the movie, the friend zone or moved to like a safe space. So they would not be maybe bullied. The word difference comes to mind. And so they're different in some way. Maybe they're not behaving socially acceptable from their peers. Maybe they're different because of other reasons. Maybe they're, they have maybe a socioeconomic difference. Like on, in that clip, you saw that this person was bullied because they couldn't afford new clothes at the beginning of the school year. Um, there could be a difference racially. There could be a difference intellectually. There could be something maybe that they participate in that someone else doesn't participate in. And that makes them different. They're vulnerable, man. You, yeah. You're, you're a member of the boy scouts or the girl oh. scouts. That's weird. You know, I'm just joking. I'm an Eagle scout, but oh. people, people use that as a kind of a marker of being, I don't know, I don't want to say unique, but it's a marker of, of being different and people don't understand different. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of the videos that we were watching, I, sure. at least for myself, a lot of my, since I'm not an adolescent anymore and I'm not you know in middle school and high school anymore a lot of what I see the representation of bullying that I see is just media that I'm consuming would you say that there are any misconceptions in the media of what bullying looks like or what it can do yeah I, I gosh there's a lot of misperceptions in the media I mean we, yeah. we talked about a few of them tonight meaning like bullying is an epidemic bullying is not an epidemic it's, mm-hmm. it, we, it is controlled in certain communities and it's even decreasing. And we kind of talked a little bit about that tonight and that, but what we're not doing is that we're not studying where it's decreasing. We don't have wow. that counter narrative. Mm-hmm. Also, that doesn't make good news according to yeah. news channel. You know, they want, for sure. they want to, they, they like the drama. We talked about the thug, you know, that the thug um, stereotype of bullies. And mm-hmm. we said that, yes, that does exist. Uh, we've seen it in mass media, but there's this other type of bully that's very um, Machiavellian in nature. Yeah. And we, we really need to be looking for those kinds of humans that are trying to get our approval or our uh, for certain, so for some reason, and this way that it blinds us to seeing maybe their behavior or their inappropriate yeah. antisocial aggressive behavior. There's also a couple more misconceptions that I did not talk about um, earlier today, which is about the the punishment of bullies and, Mm. you know, or that bullies come from dysfunctional families. Um, And this issue of punishing bullies really ignores this issue of a group phenomenon. I mean, bullying happens because they want the social reinforcement and that if you punish them, it only reinforces it more. So the group phenomenon really needs to be taken into consideration as to how we act as teachers and administrators in school building, making policy. I talked a little bit about the dysfunctional issue of, of bullies coming from, quote, dysfunctional families. Yeah. They don't always come from dysfunctional families. There's a lot of what you might call good kids that get involved in bullying. And that was discussed a little bit by your peers tonight. And that also the last kind of misconception I'll say, sorry that I had so many to share with you, Don't is be this sorry. issue of bullying is hardwired into people. They were born to be a bully, of course. Look, well, okay, maybe ignoring this huge issue of the environment, right? Yeah. I mean, gene expression is not necessarily a thing. There's no gene for bullying, but there is an environment that you curate in a community, in a school, in a home. And there's lots of science about that. And so I think environment matters more than, and it's not necessarily gene expression. 
I'm going to pick up uh, a lot of things that you were talking about, uh, the decline of bullying in okay. some sectors and the strategies in the environment. So how can peers and those maybe in the faculty of a school take steps to prevent and mitigate bullying? So asking a more specific nuanced question about aggression. How is it manifesting in your community? Because in certain communities, cyberbullying is not a thing or it's more face-to-face. -face. And so understanding what type you have and then knowing how it happens and when it happens, it's, it's in a group phenomenon. So we know that. We also know that students typically know that it's naughty behavior. They don't necessarily go into it not thinking that they're not supposed to do it. They know they're not supposed to do it, yeah. but they do it anyways. And they're going to do that in scenarios where there's low teacher oversight, right? So you're going to look at hallways, right? People getting pushed into lockers, pretty easy. That's you know why they tell us as teachers be in the hallways during transition times. Well, it that makes sense, right? We, we, yeah. we get that. But it also is happening on playgrounds, in locker rooms, where there's not, not a lot of teacher oversight as well. And so they're not completely ignorant that, that we don't know what's happening, but they're going to try to figure out a way to do it so that we're not seeing it. So at that yeah. point, is it really creating a culture where peers will feel comfortable coming forward and reporting acts of aggression if, if uh, it's in the places that uh, faculty can't see? So it's okay. So it's an issue of building rapport. So like meaning like I'm not going to have a conversation with a teacher that I don't know, that yeah. I don't respect that I don't trust. And also as a teacher, I'm not going to extend myself to a student and, and tell them that I'm going to keep confidentiality when I'm really not going to do. They have to know if we're going to talk about bullying, that I am going to be their advocate, but I'm not keeping it confidential to administrators. Okay. Their health and safety, their health and safety means more than me trying to keep confidence. And they have to know that initially upfront. And so what they're about to tell me is something that I'm going to repeat to an administrator, but it's because I'm being their advocate and they're not snitching. You know, there's that, there's that saying snitches get stitches or something like that. And, yeah. and that's, that's a, that's a different kind of like um, environment, but I guess knowing that you can support them through having an open dialogue. So mm -hmm. you've had successful conversations with them before about potentially sensitive topics, like um, current topics in, in the country, in the media, they know that your opinion, they like, maybe they like you, I mean, not all students are going to like you and that's fine, but maybe they'll, <laughs> maybe they don't even like you and they're still trusting you to have a conversation. Right. And it's, it's something we even work in, in at the university level too. It's trying to make sure that all students know that they can voice their opinion about something. If their experience is not what we want it to be, which is amazing, excellent, affective music making experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, it strikes me that when you're describing a teacher that builds rapport with students, that it screams to me music teacher because music teachers often have years with the same students where they can build those interpersonal relationships. And I know that you've studied uh, in the band room, acts of aggression in the band room. I was wondering if there was some effect that that prolonged relationship with students had on the occurrence of aggression in the music classroom. Yeah, there was a study that I that Dr. Talbot selected for you, which was the, the youth empowerment study that showed a little bit of the, the peer group social network analysis to understand where are the cohorts, people that they nominate as mutual friends, and, and what how are they cohorted. And I think as students spend time together, 
more often than not, they're building social bonds with each other that is advancing. And you, you're right to mention that, that music teachers are in a unique position from a, from a curriculum standpoint that we, see that we see our students for multiple years. That may not be the case in our other academic areas. Anecdotally, I don't, I can't recall any research off the top of my head to, to quote. Anecdotally, I can tell you that I was first call from a principal if it involved a band or orchestra kid. And I got brought into the conversation immediately because this principal knew immediately that they didn't have a relationship, but I did. I was the one that did the, um, the intake, so to speak. I've studied with Dr. Talbot and mm -hmm. with Dr. McCutcheon about the problem with like treating yourself as a counselor, as, as a music right. teacher, where you're not trained to do that. No. Yeah. No, we're not. So how do you feel comfortable in that situation when you're called in? Is it just the rapport with the student that you have or? Yeah, yeah. So I do not have any clinical training. I don't have any experience with this. I've taken lots of classes in it, but that doesn't do it. That doesn't mean anything. So <laughs> I am, I'm seeking facts, right? Because I have a rapport, I can ask you a, a harder question and you may, there's more likelihood that you're going to be honest with me, but also knowing that, that you're there to be their advocate, you're listening, but you know, your role is to not offer advice unless they ask for it. And at that point, you're going to remind them that you don't have, you don't know what to do. You're just offering an opinion and that, you know, their, the opinions of their family matters more. Trying to insert yourself as a teacher between a family member and another person is a very dangerous place to be. Do not try that. That is something that is, it's going to get you, there's going to be some burning that happens. And so you're just there to hear them. They know they can talk to you, but that oftentimes they just want to be heard that you don't need to offer advice. And I think that's where the counseling aspect could potentially, the line could be crossed is how you offer advice and, and what that means to that student. Yeah. Thank you for that. That, that That's always been a concern sure. with, with me to explore uh, kind of the broader music classroom. How could a music teacher mm -hmm. set up their curriculum or even day-to-day -day operations to prevent those hierarchies that are creating some of the power differentials that ultimately lead to maybe someone feeling left out or someone feeling not included. I'll, I'll say this before I directly answer your question. It's challenging for any teacher to set up an environment that is not reinforced by the next layer up. So if a teacher is setting up this environment in their classroom that is not reinforced either as a value of the school or a value of the community, it's gonna be challenging to have it stick, right? There has to be some way of, of having the values in your classroom mirror, match, align with the values of the school. And oftentimes they do, right? just trying to make sure that that you're not diverging totally from the school environment or from the community environment. I I can tell you, I, I mean, sometimes student teachers like to do that. They like to make their own class rules and they like to feel empowered to do that. And that's great, but you're only a guest. And especially first year, second year teachers, if you walk into a community and you start to create all these different rules, I mean, especially right now with some of the BIPOC movement and um, and that's being received really well by some communities and it's not being received well by other communities. And knowing your community and knowing your school is really important as you start to enact some of these policies. Understanding directly now to your question, this issue of 
We talked a little bit about hierarchy as far as just positions and, and knowing how students can perform, but also know that there's risk with performance socially. Mm. And that that there the, the idea of chairs is, is something that I would challenge a little bit. I mean, there's also, it's called challenging in some states or some counties, uh, challenging people for their chair. Yeah. It's it's a practice that has historical roots and values and there's motivation as well, but it, I don't know, I guess I question the, the spirit of the motivation. I, I don't want to look different from my peers. So I'm going, I'm forced to do something. Maybe I don't, anyway, there's a lot of challenges and issues with that approach. Um, leadership positions, assigning like, you know, I don't want to say concert master, but section leaders and saying, you're going to go out and you're going to teach. Yeah. Um, if you haven't, if you haven't given the, the students the tools to know how to do that, you're structuring an opportunity for dissension. The other thing too is, is understanding just technical ability versus musical ability is captured differently. Just because someone can't play this passage doesn't make them any less of a musician. They can, they can tell you, or maybe they can describe to you, maybe they can show you in other ways how they can be a good musician. And this happens technically, like when we have transitioning students who, who maybe have an injury, like focal dystonia on their lips, they can't buzz anymore. And so they have to pick up a different instrument. I mean, this happens too in the university system where they practice too much. They can't play the trumpet anymore. And now they pick up a violin because they they still want to do music school. And that could be a source. I mean, we have instrument switchovers in schools as well. Voice changes in choir, both both, uh, female and male. Yeah, it's important to remember that it's you're not building a kingdom <laughs> within your school. No, uh, and it's yeah, and there you know you can't put up walls because they're going to fall down. So I'm, I'm going to close the interview by asking, what are you working on coming up? I' very excited about a couple of these projects. Um, so part of that data that I shared with you a little bit was you know, the, the school-based data, right? The, the 1,100 students for that school. I did a, I have a manuscript in under contract right now with a publisher that discusses the lived experience of students in a instrumental music program. Sort of, it's definitely mixed methods, um, but we're looking at some of the antisocial as well as the um, the pro-social behaviors and how the complexity of those intertwine and, and how students describe those and how they live through them. I took a semester of basically being in the band and understanding the, the challenges of being a researcher, being a observer, and then you turn participant. Then you come back to observer, or, and it's, it's just a really hard thing to negotiate, but I'm really excited about that project. I'm, I'm hoping uh, to have it done in December. I'm not sure I'll have it done in December. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of, it's a lot to hold in your heart. It's a lot to hold in your head when you're writing about stuff like this. I mean, Dr. Talbot knows, and it's a, it's a lot. So I'm really, I'm really excited about that project. So, um, so stay tuned for that. And I'm still, I'm still publishing with my, some of my undergraduate students. I have a couple of them that are in a course with me that are just kind of learning about research techniques. And part of the outcomes is that they're, that they're publishing research. And so a couple of them after the class, they want to collaborate on a bigger project. We do that together. And so it's, it's fun. That's kind of what's happening next. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Logan. I appreciate it. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Go Forth, a music education talk show. This was Summer. And this is Owen. We hope to see you next week. And until then, go, go forth, forth and, and change, change the, the world. world.